Hello and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. I'm your host, Brian. With me tonight is Ian. Hey! Also with me is Jennifer. Hello. And I also have Mac. Hello. Alright. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Ready okay. to ready to get rolling here? Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Alright. Always ready to roll. Alright. Well, th- this week, um, you know, we didn't have any events or anything, so we're going to move right on to our, our first topic. Um, Ian, I think you're going to talk to us about, uh, about what's going on with NASA. Okay. Well, regretfully, we are in a recession, and so cuts have to be made. And one of the cuts has come to NASA. And this is a um, pretty big cut, and it's going to affect basically um, the programs for getting us back on the moon as well as the replacement program for the um, soon-to-be-retired space shuttles. Right, and that's the Constellation project. Yes, that they've actually already spent quite a bit on, but now they're going to have to put that all on hold. And basically what this means is we will be relying on the Russians to get us in space for the next five to ten years. What I'm hoping will come out of this, what I'm really hoping will come out of this, is much more private sector space flights. I would love to see NASA actually work more with the private sector. I think that's one thing that's kind of been hurting us is NASA has been kind of, in, in the U.S. at least, been hogging um, the space program quite a bit. You know, you know Russia, Russia, on the other hand, went and said, hey, let's work with the tourism and start getting, you know, private companies involved and get some money going in there. NASA has been quite, kind of backing away from doing that, which, I, like I said, I think has been hurting them. You know, my thing, and Phil Plate has, has spoke to, spoke about this quite a bit, I'm not convinced that NASA needs to be in the job of transporting people to space. I I would really like to see private companies start to take this because I think that we'll see a lot of innovation that way. Right, and that's why the um, and sorry X Prize was such a big deal. Right, exactly, and you know, there's a lot of. I mean, Spaceship Two is coming, so um, we're on our way. It does concern me that right now we are depending on the Russians to get us into space. I don't think this is a good idea. But we were going to have to do that anyway because Constellation wasn't going to be ready till uh, what, 2020 at this point anyway? It was supposed to be ready in 2015 right. and kept getting pushed back because of budget cuts. Yes, they, they have the engines that they were te- – they actually did test fires of the engines, but they figured they can use that technology for other things. It, as right. much as it does concern me that we're not going to have a – that we're not going to have a shuttle, it does free NASA up to do what they're good at, real science. Right, which, you know, maybe in the long run will help, but that means for a little bit we're kind of crippled. I'm torn on this, though, because, I mean, I think that some of the accidents that they've had come from the fact that NASA was doing something that maybe they shouldn't have been doing. Right. Once more, if you look at any time of exploration on this planet, it's always really been pushed by the private sector. Once you convince them that money be made, they push it and go like crazy. And I really think NASA has been doing what it can to hold the private sector back in that regard. And I'm hoping, really hoping, that this is um, going to be NASA's time to say, okay, let's work with the private sector and see if we can't help promote them and help them, uh, you know, start working on this stuff. Because if the private sector takes over, and admittedly it'll be a commercialization of space, which, you know, I have mixed feelings about. But if you commercialize it and big corporations say, hey, let's put money into it, it's going to expand a lot faster. Yeah, but if if NASA can offload the burden of maintaining a space shuttle and getting people into space and just do science and pay somebody else to take care of that for them, I'm not sure this is a terrible idea. But you right. know, part of what's going on here is that 
albeit they won't be putting people into space, they're working on building vehicles for longer space travel. So right. they're not. So the Constellation project gets cut, which I'm not sure is a bad thing. I don't think that Constellation was as well thought out as it could have been. I think that it might have gotten rushed. So this yeah. gives them a chance to to reevaluate that, and maybe they will be building another shuttle. But maybe they can build one that maybe is a little bit more efficient. I did like the Constellation project because one of the things that it did is it split up putting people into space and putting equipment into space. They had a smaller shuttle for for people and then, you know, then they had the much larger shuttle for actually, you know, putting equipment right. and stuff in there. So, I I'm torn on this because in some ways I, I'm not sure that Constellation was the right project, but at the same time it does concern me that we don't have another option other than, you know, than the right. Russians or the Chinese. And that's the thing. The, the Russians Russians are the only ones that really developed the space program along with us. No, no other country really has kept up. And like I said, no private sector. So, you know, it's very limited to what's out there. And that, I, I, like I said, this needs to change. And I'm hoping this will wake a few people up to the fact that there's definitely a market there. Yeah. You know, I did learn from South Park, though, that uh, the Mexican <laughs> space program puts people up very cheaply. Yeah. Now, for my own part, I would like to see the private sector really get into it because there's got to be a better way to put people into space than by burning billions of tons of rocket fuel. And, well, the, the, the finding there is, if you look at oh, Wikipedia has a whole page on um, the private sector stuff, and there is... Oh, there, there was the space plane. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of companies working on this stuff, and there's so much going on with it. I was looking through it today, and it, it, it's happening. And here it is. Actually, let me send you all the link. If you want to take a look at... I think in a lot of ways, though, NASA has gotten complacent since the uh, since the development of the shuttle. They've gotten complacent. They've gotten to the point where their astronauts are truck drivers. They're basically... Yeah, they're carrying scientific experiments up there, and they're carrying on experiments up there, but a lot of times they're carrying cargo. And it's gotten to the point where the exploration has gone out of it. And the right. spirit of adventure has gone out of it. You know, I think part of that, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that that's the public perception. But the people that are doing this science, I mean, those rovers that were put up were not, you know, there, there was, there was exploration there. Cassini was exploration. The good exploration is being done with robots, not humans. Yeah. And, and a lot of time, and you know, there's a lot of people who advocate that over putting humans in space. It's cheaper. They can do a lot of the things that human do, humans do. And hopefully at some point we'll be able to put a human on Mars. But until we can, we have to build bigger and better rovers. Right. Well, right now what we can do, and apparently the uh, Bigelow Aerospace has two inflatable modulars, modulars, bleh, modules up there right now in orbit. These are privately owned space stations, basically. And they're unmanned right now. and They're basically up there to test and see how... You know how well you can maintain these things, right? But the, really, the first thing we need, we, we should be doing right now, is getting a resort space station up there. You know, a, a, basically a place where you want to go and spend a couple of days in space, you can do it. You, okay. you start off at that level, and it will expand from there. And you know, I, that's one thing I love finding this page because you look over it. It's telling you what's happening right now, and some of this stuff's great because it's saying yes, these companies are pushing the boundaries there, you know, trying to get us out there. 
And why they do it? Because they know there's money to be made right now. Sure. I'm looking at this. This is a pretty... Um, I thought that the Blue Organization was also building Spaceship 2, but it says here their craft is uh, New Shepard. Oh, Spaceship 2 is... Huh, okay. I thought they also had a Spaceship 2. Interesting. It's uh, Virgin Galactic. I'm, okay, that's right. Yeah. But, so that, that's very promising. If, if NASA's kind of going to have to fall behind, hopefully some of these companies will pick up the slack and you know, make sure there's a active space program. Right. Get ready to go to Mars. We're ready to go to Mars. Tell us about it, Sean. All right. The article that I picked out for Mars was the about the. Uh, I did this as a follow up to last week when we were talking about the rover that found the volcanic rocks. The Mars rover Spirit has logged nearly five miles during six years of rolling around on the red planet. And it's now stuck in the sand. Right. Um, basically, they've been trying to rock it back and forth for months, and they finally gave up, and they're trying to make sure that it survives the winter, so maybe they can either do more research when the right season rolls around again, or, you know, maybe get it out. But well, one way or the other, they did discover a lot of things, and they will discover more as long as they can keep it surviving. Right. right. They, said, they said even with it stuck... It can still send them all sorts of information. It's still valuable as long as it's able to transmit to them. So right. exactly right because it's a stationary target. You know because it isn't moving, they can they can you know do some observations of the sky that they couldn't do before. And they haven't completely given up. I mean they they they're still going to try and move it little by little. But you know winter's coming and it's going to shut down here soon. Soon. You know the beautiful thing about science, all science, is that. Even if you don't find out what you wanted to, you still found out something. That's true. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Even in your there failures. Is no, there is no failure in science. Right. It's all just data gathering. Yeah. So yeah, that's so they haven't given up on the rover. They're gonna they're gonna keep uh keep trying, but you know, they, they do have to be careful here because winter's coming and the rover will shut down automatically, which is cool. It it automatically shuts down and then they just have to wait and if, and see if the rover comes back. They're just trying to make sure they've got enough power stored in the batteries so that it does come back after the winter. Right, yeah. All right. So moving on. Ian, what what are you going to Actually, this to? is oh. Jen's thing. Oh, this Basically, is Jen's thing. Okay. Jen? She had a link, but you go to the link, and it wants you to join up, be a member, or pay. And so I just put it in, and I oh, found a different link to basically okay. the same information. Yeah, nature, nature wants to charge you. Na- nature's expensive, too. All right. So dinosaurs have a... Uh, Dinosaur feathers have pigments. So we'll let Jen take this. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk about uh, dinosaur um, feather pigments. It was just something I came across. I really, in all honesty, don't find it that interesting. You don't? I, th- it is, I think it's pretty neat. But <laughs> Just uh, the fact that we can prove that they had pigment. Yeah. There's, there's, well, well it, the fact that we can prove what color the pigment was is very, very cool. Well, when my mom worked as a volunteer for the Natural History Museum doing the prehistoric journey, one of the things she talked about was this preacher who would come in with groups and basically, you know, try to discredit everything. Well, one of his arguments was based on the fact that they would have things posted that, you know, scientists don't actually know what colors the dinosaurs were. Well, so he was busy sitting there like, look, see, they don't know anything. They're just guessing. They're making it all up, stuff like that. So to have more science saying, hey, guess what? We do yeah, know what color some of the dinosaurs are. 
Of course, I doubt they'll make idiots like him shut up, but still. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing is that I, I think that they still need to work on this because I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that they know what colors they are. We can definitely see bands of colors. And they're saying that they can, you know, by, by looking at certain, um, chemical signatures that they can tell what colors they were. But I think that they still need to be, they, they need more comparison data in order to be sure that we're, that we're getting that right. So I, I'm, I'm convinced. What's that? Put those markers in the, the chicken they were hatching. Well, but then they've got to fossilize their feathers and see <laughs> what, what chemical residue they have left over. I mean, that's just going to take millions of years to figure out. <laughs> so I'm convinced that they, that we can tell that the, the feathers were different colored and that we can see the bands. But they, there's some other things that they can do to, um, to strengthen, uh, their findings. And one of these is by looking at Dinosaurs that don't have feathers and looking at, you know, what, what we can find from their fossil remains. So this is, this is ongoing and we'll see where it goes. I do think it's interesting. I'm just not totally convinced that they can tell exactly which colors each feather was. Well, I'm kind of hoping that they can't get the feather colors exact. My one disappointment on this is actually that the dinosaur that they've rendered here looks kind of bland. I was kind of hoping for a parrot dinosaur. <laughs> So, so you hope that uh, that they're that they're better colored. Give us parrot velociraptors. You know, I did come across an article earlier this week talking about um, dinosaurs having um, brighter colors, but I yeah. Anyway, so it's interesting. We'll see where it goes. All right. So the next one here is um, Asian genetics mutation that keeps them from becoming alcoholics. I'm gonna get a drink of my beer. Go ahead. Well, basically, what I love is. This is an example of active evolution taking place. And there's other cases of this as well. This is um, one that we'll figure is around 10,000 years ago is when it started. And what it is is that um, certain um, population of the Asians have a mutation that um, is the reason why some of them get flushed red when they drink because they process alcohol faster and cope better with it than we do. Well, then, you know, the majority of the rest of the population of the world, I should say. And it has to do with a genetic mutation. So, and what is it? Part of this, it allows them to metabolize alcohol at a hundred times the speed that it, um, the average person does. Now, what, did they find this in all Asian populations or particular ones? I mean, is it um, Chinese versus, you know, Japanese or Korean? Okay, according to this, it was two, they found it in 2000. 275 people from 38 East Asian populations. So it sounds like it's pretty well spread out. But you have to figure, they're saying it, um, they're figuring it's 10,000 years old. So, now, th basically, this story reminded me of um, something I had seen a few years ago that I looked up to, to find the name again, called the Milano gene. And this one, they're figuring, is only about 250 years old. And um, it is based in a family in uh, Italy where basically there's a genetic mutation that allows this family to get real high cholesterol, you know, insanely high cholesterol that normally should give you heart disease. But no one in the family can get heart disease, it seems. And okay. they can actually trace it back to one couple. Say, all the descendants of this couple seem to have this genetic mutation. And this one goes uh, back? About 250 years. Okay. And so this one hasn't spread outside of the town really yet. That's the thing. They're saying it's mostly this one family, but you know, a fair amount of people in the town have it as well. Okay. And I said, this is called the Milano gene, and it, it's been being studied for the last few years. 
And so these are examples of evolution happening right now in humanity. Because evolution doesn't need to be some huge, big physical change. It can be something this small this that almost seems unnoticeable. Okay. But it is evolution. It is a genetic mutation that is changing us, adapting us, and allowing people to survive better. That is pretty neat. You know what? It's it's neat that you know to think that this gene though got tested and was selected for, and now you know has spread through the Asian population as a as opposed to the Irish. Well, they in the article they talk about how it has something to do with rice, and they think that as various cultures cultivated rice, that maybe the genetic mutation moved across with it, and they're not really sure what the correlation between those two things is. Um, whether it was the people themselves moving to new areas and cultivating rice, but there was some sort of connection to rice and this genetic mutation. Okay, well, that's that's pretty interesting. I don't know if this is a beneficial mutation or a detrimental mutation, though. Well, it's easily beneficial. I mean, if if you can metabolize alcohol that much quicker, you're much le- much less likely to you know have issues with it. Well, yeah, but you're also much less likely to have unplanned pregnancies. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's a concern with the Asian population in general right now. <laughs> All right. so they're doing just fine populating. I don't think they need to worry about having extra unplanned pregnancies. All right. Jen, why don't you tell me about the uh, geoengineering schemes? Okay, geoengineering schemes. Well, there's... Various ideas of, well, what if we do this to physically change the effects of climate change? What if we throw up dust in the air that'll shade us? What do we, there's a whole bunch of different ideas out there. The problem is there's not really a way of doing a large scale test without doing a really large scale test. <laughs> and, uh, the article refers to it as, uh, planet hacking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. But um, so this week the discussion moves into a new phase, a debate over how actual field tests for geoengineering should be implemented, regulated, and in fact, whether the results would even help us to understand the most severe risks of deployment at all. So basically, we could try to do a test and, you know, scale it up, scale it up, scale it up, but because it wouldn't be ideal testing conditions, we really wouldn't know whether we had succeeded or not. And uh, so it, it's, I found it amusing that, you know, there's all these big ideas and there's just no practical way to really test them until we get to a point where we're like absolutely desperate to try anything, even if it winds up killing us. <laughs> so, Jen, you're saying that these tests are basically to avert disaster, but unless disaster is happening, we don't know if they worked. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This stuff scares me. Because, this sounds like a job for Bruce Willis. Oh, <laughs> I think Chuck Norris could handle it. <laughs> no, he's never been in one of those movies. <laughs> Hillary Swank could, though. Ah, no, come on. Hey, Chuck, the core. <laughs> when Chuck Norris gets warm, he turns off the sun. <laughs> no, this stuff scares me because what if... What if we try this and it, it, it goes too far? And instead of you know, instead of global warming, we get a global ice age. That's what the article does talk about. You know, exactly. Where, where you need to stop, and so. And how do we know when to stop? The debate over whether the you know whether the Earth is actually warming or not 
it rages on. I mean, if we so if we can't agree on that, then how can we decide? You know how much how much to change it, and if this is the right change to make. Well, I told you last week why global warming is happening. Our population has gotten to a point where the number of people is just generating a little more heat. <laughs> I think uh, NASA's uh, stuff from last week, the, the article they published on on uh, the the average temperatures of the globe, was pretty conclusive. Well, but I'm telling you why. Because there are just so many people out there. That's true. NASA did, uh, did opt not to uh, speculate. You know, there's well, only... you figure central heating. <laughs> We're generating all sorts of heat. Not so... only are there people. I mean, think about being in a large room, you know, 20 by 20 room with one person. You're chilly. You stick a thousand people into that room, it's going to warm up. So are you advocating leaving the fridge door open to cool the neighborhood? <laughs> how are you going to get? I'm just how are you going to get a thousand people into a twenty by twenty room and, without you know liquefying them? <laughs> well, I didn't tell you how tall the room was. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one safe way to do these testings: it's geoengineering testings. We have to terraform Mars. That's what I, I, I I'm totally with you on that. Let's let's test it on Mars. <laughs> let's terraform Mars. NASA, you have a new mission. <laughs> I like that. I do too. <laughs> yeah, we just have to pull an Earth from another reality and then experiment with all we want. Hey, you know what? There's a spare. The mice built one. <laughs> yeah. All right. Spiritual advisor or psychic? Yeah, this story was interesting. Um, Basically, to, to see exact, you know, I, I guess I don't completely understand the mindset of psychics, although honestly, I think this is more of just trying to get out of paying bills. But, um, Sophia Kent apparently is upset because she does not wish to be classified as a fortune teller for paperwork purposes. Oh, okay. I know where you're going. With and this. basically, what is happening is she is suing because according to her, it's a constitutional right to operate as a spiritual advisor. The thing is, if you look at what's going on, no one's saying she can't do that. They're just saying she's going to be classified as a fortune teller because all their paperwork has her classified as a fortune teller. But she's trying to claim she's doing a religious service. Right, but isn't part of this also that it's the way that the laws work and that she'd rather just be a, a regular business as opposed to a fortune teller? That, that's well, yeah. what it sounds like. I, I'm betting it must be cheaper or something. That's right, yeah. The way the, laws, the way the laws read is that any person or establishment engaged in the occupation of occult sciences, including a fortune teller, palmist, astrologist, numerologist, clairvoyant, craniologist, phrenologist, card reader, spiritual reader, tea leaf reader, prophet, psychic, or advisor, and any who in any manner claims or pretends to tell fortune or claims or pretends to disclose mental faculties of in individuals for any form of compensation. Under the definition of the law, she is a fortune teller. Yeah. But she doesn't want to have to pay those licensing fees, and so she's trying to claim this is a religious thing. And it's like, you're doing a business where you're, you know, clearly using tarot cards, doing reading and stuff, doing what the law says is going to be classified as a fortune teller. You aren't trying to say it's religious, fine, but you're, you're still classified as a fortune teller. Sure. If it looks like a duck, yeah. if it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's not a goose. <laughs> 
and it's not a parent velociraptor. You know, I think that they did forget one in here. What what do they call it when you do the butt readings? What does Sylvester Stallone's mom do? Uh, That is astrology. No, that's not astrology. She reads butts. (laughs) She does butt readings. It's astrology. Uh, Well, no. (laughs) I think that they missed that one, though. Should be in here. Yeah, I'm not sure how popular that is. Well, I don't know, but uh, Sylvester uh, Stallone's mom does it. It's astrology or gluteography. It's just one of those things where you're looking at she's wasting money and resources to try on a lawsuit for this. It's like, give it up. I just want to rename it, though, from Fortune Teller to, um, you know, like quackology. You know, I I like the concept of phrenology, which is the reading of bumps on the head to determine the personality, except I much prefer the concept of retrophrenology, which is putting bumps on somebody's head to encourage personality traits. (laughs) (laughs) That one, uh, that one is, I can attribute to the author Terry Pratchett. Uh, Yes. Brilliant, brilliant man. Well, did you, do you remember Men at Work? What does a phrenologist do? Feels and interprets the bumps on Walt's asshole? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Organ donation in Israel. Yes. Um, I've actually read a couple things recently about organ donation, Um, of course, because China was a big tourist destination for people looking for organs, and there were some suspicious deaths of prisoners and, you know, they're trying to put an end to that sort of thing. Um, so the whole issue of organ donation, money changing hands makes some people feel dirty. Other people don't want to do organ donation because they're worried about getting into the afterlife if they don't have all of their body parts there. Um, so Israel has uh, launched a new policy to encourage organ donation. Uh, anyone who registers to allow his organs to be taken posthumously gets slight priority if he needs one in the future. And uh, if two people who are about the same level of illness are in need of a, um, an organ, the one who has an organ donor card will get the organ if, uh, if he's in need. So it was kind of an interesting take on it, trying to encourage people to be organ donors. And um, there's also mentioned in this article, which is on Slate, uh, they mention the issue of monetary compensation. So they've decided that you can get money to memorialize your deceased relative if they are an organ donor, um, but that you can't use any monies gained in this way to pay off bills or stuff. It has to specifically go to memorializing the person who died. Um, but they're one of the first places, I think, to legalize a certain amount of money changing hands after organ donation. And it, it it's kind of interesting. You know, people, obviously people who have religious beliefs about not taking medicine or what have you are not likely to be organ donors. But I think, for me personally... I don't have a real issue with a, an organ moving from one person to another. And uh, really, at some point, there's got to be money changing hands somewhere. And you'd rather that it was out in the public view rather right. than, you know, yeah. shady and behind the scenes. So You know, I, I'm not sure, you know, if, if I give a kidney, is it unreasonable that, you know, that I get um, a certain amount of compensation for doing that? 
Right. Oh, no, the idea makes sense. It's well, except that then the people with the most money are going to get the organs. No. Yes. Yeah, see. Okay. I see that there's an issue there. It's. It leaves itself open to be perverted very easily. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It would have to be. Uh, how would you regulate that? I guess is what it comes down to. Yeah. And how quickly does the regulation fall apart to the point where you know you can sell to where you have an unwilling organ donor who wakes up in a bathtub full of ice. Exactly, or yeah. winds up put on death row and killed in a prison. Right, well, I'm certainly not advocating that. No. But right. what, was his, what was the man's crime? Well, he had a really good pair of healthy kidneys, <laughs> and uh, his liver wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah. He had one of those Asian livers. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, I know. <laughs> Brian, are you putting in for an Asian liver? I, I am, absolutely. You know what? If I can metabolize alcohol faster, I'm all for that. <laughs> It'll just make you look embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my stomach could keep up with the liver if I did that, though. Um, I, the rest of the article goes on to talk about um, one of the reasons that Israel is trying to increase the number of people in Israel donating organs is that they um, passed a law that said that the Israeli Ministry of Health had to stop paying for transplants that were obtained in countries that themselves outlawed organ sales. Okay. So they're trying to curtail organ um, tourism, transplant tourism. Okay. And uh, so that's why the let's make there be some sort of legal money compensation came into it because they didn't want people just going to other countries and getting an illegal organ. Well, it sounds like it's a way to promote legal organ donation, you know, to try and keep it more regulated, more organized, more legal, and more moral. Yeah. So, you know, if, if they can, you know, keep the regulations going, it should help. Now, yeah, there'll still be the illegal stuff going on, but I, I something like this to me sounds like it would reduce the illegal activity instead of promote it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it works. You know, remember, you know, and these kinds of projects, though, probably work better in smaller places like Israel. Um, you know, they, they might actually be able to, to, to accomplish this, um, ethically. I don't, I don't think it would work so well here in the States. Just because of size? Yeah, I think just because of size. Maybe, may, I could be wrong there, but it, I mean, the regulation that would have to be put into it, you know, to, to keep it on the up and up, I think would be pretty substantial here in the States. Well, really, the the key is to get more people willing to donate their organs, and that's kind of the big thing. Um, it also mentions in here that people were under the mistaken impression that traditional Jewish law said the body had to be buried intact with everything there. Um, so really, well, you know if what, you though? look at the body as just an object and not you know something sacred, I don't see there being a problem personally with organs going from one person to another. Well, but you were here just recently um, in Israel, a, uh, um, a priest stopped an autopsy because they didn't want the body, you know, um, to be uh, what? Desecrated? Desecrated, right. So there are, there are definitely some issues there whether, you know, on whether it's ethical or not according to Jewish law. Well, according to this article, it was a mistaken impression. Well, but if you traditional, but okay. I do not know anything about traditional Jewish law. Yeah, I don't either. But I know just recently. I mean, this holy man, you know, they they they, they took a body, 
so that it so that you know it couldn't be autopsied. So he he doesn't feel the same way. Yeah. So it, it definitely is a much touchier subject <laughs> for them. Well, here's a solution that may satisfy everybody. If they're taking oh, no. taking posthumous <laughs> organs, you put the organs you're taking out of the person who's got a sick organ back in the dead body. He's got all these parts. <laughs> Some of them are replaced. But but what if the parts that you put back in aren't kosher? It depends on how you remove them. <laughs> if they have a rabbi do it, I think it's fine. <laughs> so now the rabbi's got to do it? Yeah, but you just got to follow Bart Simpson's logic. You don't want your um, body parts to sick people. That's just gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what, though? If you change your lifestyle a little bit, I think that, uh, you know, you can prevent about 40% of cancers. What do you think of that? <laughs> nice well, segue. It wasn't just, Thank you. It wasn't just changing some of your lifestyle. It was proactive, you know, vaccination against certain things. Yeah, they do go into that. They certainly go in. Um, this article, 40% of cancers could be prevented. And they go in, and this gentleman is saying that 12 million people were diagnosed with cancer worldwide each year could avert the killing disease by protecting themselves against infection by changing their lifestyle. And of course, it seems to to focus specifically on cervical and liver cancer, which are both caused by infections, which can be prevented. Exactly. Yeah. And the human papillomavirus, which of course we have a vaccination for. Oh, but you don't want to give that to girls because then you're encouraging them to have sex. Well, if they're having sex with me, yes. <laughs> That's one of the things against the vaccination for HPV. Is yeah, that I know. They encouraged it to start well before girls were likely to be having sex. And they said, you know what? About 12 is probably a good age because you don't really know well, when sure. the girl's going to get sexually yeah. active. Well, and, and, and people were in arms about it. Yeah. That, you know, is somehow telling people, go have sex. You've gotten this vaccination. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but that's some of the same argument they had about why you shouldn't teach sex education in schools. I know. You know because that's what encourage them to go out and do it. And, and uh, admittedly, we'll get into some of this yeah, later we'll in the show. But, you know, as we'll show later in the show, you know, it seems to actually work just the opposite. Yeah. Now, the other one that they put on here, though, is hepatitis C. Right. Um, I mean, now, I don't. Do they give out that Im- Is that part of the regular immunizations? I don't think I, I've been. I wasn't aware there's there. actually an immunization for that. Yeah. Hepatitis actually, e, there's one. Okay, guys. Okay. We're talking I, I over each other. I know my boys had a hepatitis shot. Oh, really? Some, yeah, for some form of hepatitis. Both boys, both my boys have gotten immunization to it. Okay. I, you know what? I don't know if the girls did or not. Yes. They did? Yes, it's part of their normal it is. thing. It I, does mention hepatitis C in the article. Yeah. Um. But I'm trying to see if it says anything specifically about vaccination for such. Yeah, so it's interesting. But, you know, this this is, you know, one expert's opinion. So he goes into the expert section of my um, credibility scale. (laughs) But, of course, a lot of it's common sense. Quitting smoking, eating healthy, limiting alcohol intake, and reducing sun exposure. And we all know that. Some of us still abuse a few of those, like the eating healthy part and stuff like that. We know it might cause it. So some of this is common sense that if you're doing it, you're not going to stop, you know, just because you're being told now, oh, you know, 40% of the cancers can be stopped. 
you're not going to end your bad habits just because of that. So that part really... Well, I think because there's a certain fatalism to people's mindsets that, you know, especially if you have a religious outlook that God is in control of things. If you have cancer, God must have wanted me to have cancer, you know. And yes, there's a small population that says we're not going to do any sort of medical intervention. But, you know, people hear cancer and they think I'm going to die, whereas we've gotten really, really good at treating cancers. And even if you do get cancer, you're not as likely to die from it because we have ways of working against it. Certainly, we've gotten better at treating a lot of cancers. But you know what? I'm just glad that God invented magnets. Because that's what we do for the other 60% of cancers? <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so, no, this is a really interesting story. And I first heard about this technology. So this is um, magnetic nanoparticles target human cancer cells. And so the way that this works is that they're, um, they're taking um, small magnets, and basically, they're they're coating them with um with something that will um basically when it sees the you know the cancer cells it will attach to it, and then they filter the blood much like dialysis, and they and they pull all those magnets out, and so they can pull out free floating cancer cells by doing this. I first heard about this technology talking about um uh, attacking blood infections. blood infections, right? And with blood infections, they said that they could do this up to about eighty uh, percent. And blood infections are serious because, of course, they spread very quickly. So this can uh, target the free-floating cancer cells and prevent basically cancer cells from going and in, in infecting different parts of the body so they can attach to it and get them out of there. And because this article was saying that that is actually one of the, the bigger problems with cancer, going in and removing the tumor is either is easy, but it's all the free-floating cancer cells that, um, that probably are, are induced by that. Um, that can be a bigger problem. So this is a really interesting technology, which I thought was also cool, is that uh, they did this in mice, and I think that they probably used cadavers um, reading it because they, they, they do talk about um, removing cancer cells from the abdomen, um, but then they also talk about going on to test this in, in live subjects. So it sounds like they did mice, and then and then they did... Um, I'd have to assume cadavers if they weren't if they weren't living people. But um, well, no, I, I the the take I got on this was that they're working on cells initially, and then they're going to test it on live mice, and then eventually move to testing it on live people. Uh, but I thought that it sounded to me like they had tested it on anyway. So well, there's it's still in testing, but so that they coat the they they uh, they coat the cancer cells to, to fluoresce green, and then the magnets are red. So they can so they can tell by which ones have captured a cancer by which ones fluoresce. So you know that the technology what, that we got that from squid, right? The fluorescing. Um, yeah, the fluorescing. That that is being used everywhere. It is so cool. You know that they do that. They they they'll code a gene you know, to fluoresce a certain way, and you know you can you, you can make you know your bunny fluoresce green in the dark. <laughs> you know, it sounds like. Uh... It says, in the latest round of testing, their technique appears to work as well at capturing cancer cells from human patient samples as it did from mice. Right. So, um, okay, they, they so. definitely worked with humans to some degree, whether or not directly or if they, it says samples. I'm not quite sure what that means. Yeah, I was confused in that. I thought, I, I had thought cadavers because it goes on to talk about live, certainly it wasn't tested in live humans. That's, that, that. Uh, I, I don't know. That's almost, either was, it says the next step is to test whether the technique works in live animals instead of just cells. Okay. So they right. had cancer cells. They had non-cancer cells. Okay. They fluoresced the cancer cells. So it doesn't sound like they 
run it through anybody. Okay. What What's a big thing about this is that, uh, you know, the the main that they're testing it on right now, the main cancer they're testing it on right now, seems to be for ovarian cancer. And ovarian cancer has been almost universally a very sure killer. Yeah, it's very Because serious. it metastasizes very fast. Yeah. Yeah, and our treatments are not very good against it. Exactly. So... And what this is going to do is it's going to catch the free-floating cells from the ovarian cancer, pull them out, and cause it to have less of a chance of metastasizing. And yeah, and spreading. So this, so I know, and so this technology can be. I think that they'll adapt it and use it for other things. So they'll use it for um, blood infections. They're going to use it for cancer. Who, who knows what's next? Maybe, maybe the the same technology can be used against HIV. That would be kind of interesting. I, I don't know if that's possible or not, but I think the potential for this kind of technology is pretty cool. Yeah, very much so. You guys want to hear about uh, Andrew Wakefield? We do. So Andrew Wakefield, uh, um, he is one of the um, he's a doctor who did some uh, who did some testing, and he's one of the, he had published an article in the Lancet, which is an uh, English medical journal, and he is the guy who is really attributed with kicking off the anti-vax craze, fanatics, whatever, and. This article, of course, has been, and this is a peer-reviewed journal where this got uh, where this got published. And uh, his colleagues, ha- um, over the years that that were also on this, ha- had taken their name off of it. I think in two thousand four, his colleagues took their name off of this. And the um, the London Medical Journal, they um, uh, after a board review, um, basically came down to he wasn't exactly ethical. And with what he did, and there was some mistakes and some flaws in the data, and and it came down to that that it wasn't a very good, um, wasn't a very good paper, and they have retracted it. So this well, it looks it looks as if he actually got a disciplinary anal- a disciplinary panel as well, and he may have actually been censured for this. So yeah, so this is this is pretty serious, you know, and re- really, I mean. I know that it happens a lot. I mean, stuff it stuff even though it gets printed in peer-reviewed journals, uh, it, it it isn't always going to be right. But this looks like it was almost negligent. So, this is this is great. I mean, but the problem is is that of course, you know, the anti-vaxxers are all already up in arms, you know, talking about I mean, they they basically just think that you know, this this is their way of, you know, that, that they're being attacked. When really it was just bad science that was being done, um, that was being retracted. But of course, you know, the, because this is what the anti-vaxxers always go back to referring to is this particular article. They're of course quite upset about it. Right. Call it a victory for common sense. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that 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 is a great. It is. You know, it really is a victory for common sense. It's it's unfortunate that that it was such a bad article that got all of this started because realistically, as much as the anti-vaxxers start to drive me nuts. Good research has come out of this to show that these vaccines are safe and that they're not causing autism. Another thing that when I was looking out, looking around, um, trying to find more information out about this is that I, I found, you know, one of the things that these anti-vaxxers are asking for is more transparency. They want more of the documentation, particularly for the MMR, released, and I think some of it was, you know, so that the, so that, that documentation can be gone through. I'm not against that. I, I actually, I think that transparency is good. So the, the, there is some good things that have come out of this. You know, the vaccines have been tested. 
Um, you know, they pulled the thimerosal out of, of a lot of these vaccines. And the thimerosal is a preservative that contains the ethyl mercury that they're complaining about. It didn't change anything, but these people have been listened to. And it's unfortunate that they don't see it that way. Um, so, I mean, not all of this has been bad. I, unfortunately, I don't think that this is going to change any opinions. People who, who still believe that, that these vaccinations are causing autism are going to continue to believe that they're causing autism in the face of all of the research. Well, weren't you just telling me that um, the children, somebody looked at the numbers of autistic children in vaccinated and unvaccinated populations, and the vaccinated populations were actually showing less? This was actually a study done in Poland, and in, um, and I unfortunately I don't remember it as well as I, uh, um, as when I think I when I talked to you about it. Um, they have different levels of people that about the way that they're vaccinated, and so they they um they looked at people who had certain vaccinations, whether they got the um the full MMR, whether they just got um the rubella shot, or and no vaccinations, or it was either they, they split the MMR up right. And, and they only got part of the, um, part of it. They didn't get the, the full vaccination. And some people in Poland got the full vaccination. And when they looked at autism rates amongst the three groups, the group that had the lowest incident of autism was the, um, the population that, that got the full MMR shot. And the MMR is measles, mumps, rubella. Right. So I think that they, uh, so I don't know. The middle population that didn't get part of it, I can't remember which piece they were missing. Uh, let's see. I found one study finds lower incidence of autism in vaccinated kids. This is on the statsblog.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, I don't see a date on this. Do, I, do, 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 do. I got the information it's from... It's a Polish study. A Pol okay. okay, great. When the researchers looked only at children who had been vaccinated before their autism diagnosis... They found that children who had received the MMR vaccine had an 83% lower risk of autism than unvaccinated children. Similarly, the measles-only vaccine was associated with a 56% lower risk. When the researchers looked at children who had been vaccinated before showing any signs of autism, MMR vaccination was again linked to a lower risk of the disorder. The measles-only vaccine showed no effect on autism. Um, Let's see, it linked to Reuters.com. Monday, January 4th, another study finds no MMR autism link. Okay. So, like, so in the face of the research, I mean, they're not going to accept these studies. And, and this is one of those cases where you can't change the mind of a believer. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I think that the research here has been done good and been done ethically. Well, I'd read something a little while ago talking about one of the problems with it is we're about two generations removed now from some of the real plagues that have been um, dealt with thanks to vaccinations. And we don't have as many kids dying at young age from whooping cough and measles and stuff like that. So what you're saying, well, hold on, this is, this is, the issue is not the issue with the science. This is an issue with people's um, perceptions. perceptions, right? Okay. Because they don't realize how um, devastating a lot of these things were that were using um, the vaccinations to stop. While if you talk to like a grandparents' generation, they know, you know right. they didn't have the vaccinations. Kids were dying from measles and such. 
and the vaccinations come in and it's not happening. And so you have a generation that doesn't understand really the um, devastation that was being caused by these things. And so they don't realize just how important the vaccinations are. They, they, they see them as trivial and unimportant and um, aren't really understanding the impact of them. Right. But vaccinations wiped out smallpox. Vaccinations wiped out polio. Yep. Well, um, and, and unfortunately, polio is coming back in some places because they're not getting the shot. So polio is starting to come back in some, you know, in, yep. in some and places. That's, that, that's one of the concerns the doctors have had. They're saying, you know, th- these parents are saying, oh, we're not going to get our kids vaccinated because according to these papers that, that can cause them harm, they're allowing these diseases that we practically wiped out to get a foothold again. And, yeah. and if they get a foothold, they can mutate and become impossible to manage. Right. Right. Well, and let's, I mean, but here's the other side of this is that, you know, Jenny McCarthy, whose son has autism, and she, I mean, and she's, she's come out, she said a lot of stupid things, a lot of things that are not scientific. You know, she talks about anecdotal evidence and she talks about, you know, what is it, the mommy, uh, whatever, mommy, um, mommy instinct being, you know, better than science and all this. And her child has autism. And we can make fun of, you know, the things that she says and some of the stupid things that she does. But in the end, we have to sympathize with the fact that she has a kid that has autism and she needs an answer. She she really needs to feel like she understands why her kid is in this situation. And I feel for it because if it was one of my kids, you know, you've got to sit back and say, would I be able to be rational about this? She's got to feel like she's being the best mother she can possibly be. Exactly. And so she feels like she's protecting my kids when she does this. When And I feel like she is putting them in danger. So there's a, there's a difference of perspective here as well. Yeah. But I think it's important to acknowledge why Jenny McCarthy would feel the way that she does. Yes. Oh, definitely. You know, talking of victories for common sense, that's not the only victory you've got this week, is it? It is not the only victory I've got. Unfortunately, this is another very, this is a sad story because unfortunately, oh, yeah. um, a, a couple of parents were found guilty of, um, basically, uh, of killing their child. And they did this because they did not get their child proper medical attention. Um, and now I'm trying to remember what he was, uh, um, he, he originally wasn't anything too serious. That's right. Thing. That's, um, yeah, that's one of the real killers about it. Now, the family is a member of a Christian church, and of course this church has a, a bias against Western medicine. Um, they say um, they're the... Followers or- of Christ Church. Yeah, all followers of Christ Church. And so, instead of getting proper medical attention for their child, they prayed for him. And... Here it is. Actually, what it's saying is he became ill with a cold that developed into something um, bigger. It just started off as a simple cold, and it got worse. Well, but it was a congenital urinary blockage that they tried to heal him with with prayer. Right. And that's something that has to be dealt with with surgery. And he was in quite a bit of pain, it sounds like. And and they ignored his pain and continued to pray for him. And by doing that, they basically sentenced this poor child to death. It was abuse. <laughs> well, you know, but here's the, here's the thing is that once again we have to we have to remember that these people they believed in in healing by prayer, and so they thought they were doing the right thing. 
you you would you would never have been able to convince these people that prayer can't heal their child. Even though we have a study saying that, you know, you pray for people, they don't heal as quickly. And the mothers that have drowned their kids in order to protect them from going to hell believe they were doing the right thing. They had to get the demons out. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I'm not saying it's right, and I think that convincing these people was the right thing to do. But on the other hand, these people have to live with the fact that they killed their son. And it's questionable, though. It is sad. Oh, yeah. yeah, and it's questionable whether the whether they will be able to come out of this and go, wow, we did the wrong thing. Or or are they so convinced of what they did that they still think that they did the right thing? Well, they may have to believe that they did the right thing just for their own mental health. Well, that's true. You know, I now I watched this, this video clip that's on here, of basically, of the sentencing, and it's good that the judge went through the fact that these people were not allowed to respond. Nobody was allowed to respond to the verdict in any in any way. He he, he was gonna he was gonna pitch them if if they were if you know if anybody responded any way to this. So it's just very unfortunate. Uh, but I'm glad it's the president that's being set saying, "Listen, your religious beliefs can only go too far. Once you jump over the common sense thing and allow your child to be put in." mortal danger, we're going to have to go after you now. Right. And I think that'll help a lot of, you know, concerned families. Like, you know, if you're an uncle of a kid and you see this happening, you can go to the police now and say, listen, you know, you, the precedence has been set. I need you guys to go in and get my nephew, niece, whatever, out of there and medical care because, you know, the parents aren't doing it right and we need to make sure they survive. Screw the religious ideas because that's obviously not going to save the kid's life. You know, this is not the first time this has happened. Another another um another couple was um uh was convicted for uh, and their child was 9 months old that they had a severe case of eczema that they were treating with homeopathy and I think it was the English government that put them away. And the father was a doctor. He was a homeopath and a doctor. And when the child's mother got sick, she went to a hospital. But yet their child, they treated with homeopathy. That's really messed up. I mean, this is when this stuff goes too far. This is when this is when it, when alternative medicines are dangerous and they kill oh, people. Yeah. And this is why more awareness has to be brought to this stuff. Because if it isn't, and unfortunately this isn't enough. This one case is not enough because it's still, once again... There's too many believers out there. Well, it didn't work in that case. They didn't Whatever. believe enough. They didn't believe enough. There's another one. You know, he got better at first, is what it says. You know, after his initial illness, he got better, but then a couple months later, you know, he got even worse. So, you know, and they're going to use that. You know, he got better. It was obviously working, but I guess we just weren't strong enough the second time. Yeah. So, unfortunately, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, this is this is a, a win for common sense, but it is a huge loss for these people. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, they lost a child because of this. You can only hope they learn from it, but you sometimes get the feeling they're not going to quite move on like they need to. Yeah, that's true. All right, so... I want to move on, and I, I'd like on to... On a lighter note. On a lighter note, please. <laughs> Woo, boy. <laughs> I'd like to talk about confirmation bias because this is, I mean, this is one that, of course, we're all susceptible to. And, and I think that a lot of the stories that, that we've covered 
um, particularly, you know, the MMR, vaccination stuff, the faith healing. I mean, certainly the, those fall into the confirmation bias. So I think this is very important to talk about what confirmation bias is and hopefully, you know, some tools on how to protect ourselves against it and, and how to get past it. Because certainly a lot of this comes out of the way that our minds work. Yeah. Well, confirmation bias is everywhere. And I everything I see around me just serves <laughs> to prove that. <laughs> I know yeah, beer is terrible. good because it's sitting on my desk. <laughs> So, confirmation bias. I think that there's some of this that we do intentionally, and there's some of this that we do unintentionally. And I think with politics in particular, I think that people do this intentionally. Um, because it's always nice to hear people that are on your side and have similar beliefs um, that you can listen to that, that are talking because it, it, it reinforces... Yeah, it makes you feel good See, about yourself. I was right. All these people agree with me. Exactly. And and you could all still be wrong. Yep. <laughs> and that's the problem with confirmation bias. Now, it, it, it's it's blurrier with, you know, with politics, I think, you know, because you've got, you Some know. It's opinion. Yeah, a lot of it is opinion. So so that's that's one thing. But, you know, it's different when it comes to stuff that we can prove through, you know, through science and, and, and have actual evidence to support. Um, and I think, you know, even politics, you know, is subject to that. You know, there's some stuff that we can prove works or doesn't work. Um, but it's easy to seek out stuff that, um, that fulfills a, you know, that, uh, agrees with what we've already thought. Right. Agrees with what we already thought. Backs up our own preconceived conclusions. Right. But, you know, it's very difficult to get beyond these biases because we don't always know that we're doing it. Because of, I mean, because of our, um, the, let's say, defects in our brain, you know, we, we can't always tell. I mean, and this comes into play um, with, particularly with, say, pareidolia. And, and this happens a lot with um, people who see ghosts. Our, our, our eye has a blind spot. Have you, have you done this test where there's a, like a dot on the paper and you bring it closer and closer and closer to the dot disappears? Yeah, I've done that. Yep. Right. So things can happen, you know, like you, like when you think you see stuff out of the corner of your eye, uh, a lot of times that's just because of that, the way that, that, because of that blind spot. And so you might think that you saw a shadow or something. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, because you always seem to see ghosts out of the corner of your eye. Well, that's because ghosts are shy. Well, okay. <laughs> um, and they get embarrassed, which you can tell by the fact that they flush when they're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> They've got my liver. There you go. <laughs> so, I think that... another good example is Friday the 13th. Oh, okay. Anything that's superstitious related. Anything bad can happen to you on any other day of the week. But if it's a Friday the 13th and something bad happens to you, oh, it happened because it's a Friday You attribute it to Friday the 13th. Absolutely. Exactly. How about yeah, well, me, me and Sarah figured that the reason last year was really crappy for us was because our 10th wedding anniversary fell on Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Hey, you know you're... You guys were there. Does anybody remember my wedding anniversary? <laughs> No. I'm drawing a blank on that no. one. <laughs> okay. We were all there, but I, I have no idea. What, I know I was pregnant with Tatiana, but that's about it. Sorry, total 
random aside. Oh, it's a non sequitur. <laughs> yes, it was. We had actually picked out an article for tonight about U.S. teen pregnancy rate up for the first time since 1990. There was a study on this. We had picked this out for earlier in the podcast, but uh, as we were discussing it, we kind of started to think that it would be good to illustrate here for confirmation bias. Yeah, so Jen, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about this story. Okay, um, it's not the first time I've heard this, but uh, U.S. teen pregnancy rate rose in 2006 for the first time in 16 years, said a report on Tuesday. Um, as experts speculated that the increase was due to abstinence-only sex education in schools. Um, they're speculating. They don't know for sure why teen pregnancy rates went up, but of course, all the people who uh, think that we should be promoting sex education and the use of contraceptives say, look what Bush did. He wanted to do abstinence-only. Suddenly, the birth rate goes up. And, uh, of course, the other side of that is that everybody who wants to see abstinence-only programs would say, kids have gotten to be evil, it's that damn TV, there's all these terrible things, morality is going down the toilet because the pregnancy rate run up. Uh, so either way, somebody's bias is going to get confirmed by this. Right. I was talking about this with my wife earlier, and we were discussing the fact that Children are going through puberty earlier these days because of environmental factors. Plastics, hormones in meat, all kinds of different factors are causing children to become more mature more quickly and to do think have, in a more I, mature see, fashion I don't think earlier that's true. in life as well. Yeah, I don't think that's true. A study to prove that? I mean, um, certainly there were issues with hormones in animals and. Uh, I've like, heard a lot of different speculation on why. One of the more interesting ones is also body fat. Um, we're fatter now, and one of the things that triggers um, um, your hormones to hit puberty is having the proper body fat to move on to the next level of maturity physically. And um, I, I had seen a, a, someone talking about that, saying, it, it, "No, the, the hormones. No, they're not going to do much because they're everywhere." Right. Um, but it is the body fat that's causing it. That being bigger, you know, the, the, the girls are going to have the fat there to start developing their breasts, and that's going to trigger all the other hormonal stuff that goes with it. You know what? I like to see some actual evidence on this because I'm not convinced that. I mean, 12 years old, I, I think, is not so uncommon, and I think that that's kind of what they're saying. I mean, I think ancient men is probably about when they, you know, the the females started to to ovulate. Well, we, but there are certainly stories of children, 11, 10. I yeah. knew a girl who was nine and had her period. Um, only one, but of course, because of the freedom, the free way that information moves around and the ease of accessing and spreading a story very quickly, you know, there could be five cases, but everybody hears about it because one person says, oh, hey, look at this. And, right. um, so uh, the Mayo Clinic says there are two types of precocious puberty, central precocious puberty or peripheral precocious puberty. Uh, in central, the entire HPG axis starts too soon, and somewhere up there it tells me what HPG axis is. Uh, the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And uh, 
In rare cases, it can be a tumor, an infection, a defect in the brain, radiation to the brain, injury to the brain, obstruction of blood flow to the brain, uh, a genetic disease, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and hypothyroidism. Um, And then peripheral could be caused by a tumor, exposure exposure to external sources of estrogen or testosterone, such as creams or ointments. But... So far, nothing on here specifically says hormones in food. Right. I know. So, I mean, are well, people uh, are, are just? Uh, I brought up the uh, I brought up the early onset puberty though for a, to basically make a point about confirmation bias. Okay. Yeah. So the point that I was going to make is that they're talking about the the teen pregnancy rate on the rise due to the abstinence only teachings of the Bush administration. It could also be an environmental factor of the early onset puberty. Some of the some of the girls who are getting this abstinence only teaching may have already been sexually active for years before this. Yeah, there's been enough studies though to show that abstinence only doesn't work. There have been real studies out there that okay. have been showing it for some time now. Not that the religious rights listening to them, but <laughs> the studies have been done and they have shown listen. You know, abstinence only is not working. You know, if we're going to just waste money on sex education, let's waste it on a program that proves to work better. <laughs> well, then, it, but it wouldn't be wasting money then. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's not that kids were having any less amount of sex, but if you tell them to use a condom, they're more likely to have bought condoms and had them on hand. And if they've got them on hand, there's a higher chance they're going to use them. If they don't even buy them because they think buying the contraceptive is wrong, then they get into a situation where they get carried away and sex happens. Right. The, the stigmata that got placed on buying condoms in our society is just ridiculous. You know, I've seen it in movies and stuff where the teenage kids are supposed to be all embarrassed. It's like, no, nah, come on, let's go against that. Let's make them just feel like it's nothing big because, you know, if you do that, if you teach them that, it's not nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be embarrassed of, they're going to do it more. <laughs> I think you meant stigma, Ian. Stigma, yeah. Uh, stigmata specifically means something else. Yes, I know. Sorry. Stigma. Okay. The stigma attached. So, okay, so this article can certainly, I mean, certainly I think that we could find some evidence to back up our claims that absence only doesn't work. But if you take it just on the face of it, let's say this is all we've got, this certainly smooths a certain bias. Yes. And it serves an agenda. Absolutely. Which is what confirmation bias does. Either a personal agenda or a, a larger agenda. It serves an agenda. Okay. So now let me, now the next question I would want to ask you is, do you think that this particular source has a bias? Well, the article I'm looking at is on Yahoo News. Okay. Right. And it's coming from the AFP. It's, it's coming basically from the, uh, it's not the Associated Press. Okay. Associated Free Press. Right. Um... It could be said that the Associated Free Press does have a liberal bias, which does tend to go against the conservative Bush administration. Okay. But, but also the people that they're talking to, uh, the Guttenmacher Institute, okay. has a bias as well. All right. I'm not even sure what the Guttenmacher Institute is. Let's see. Oh, the way Yahoo does its links. Let's search Google. Guttenmacher. Okay. So... But so what? What I want to illustrate here is uh, so we have an article that that seems to have a particular bias. 
um, we're, we're saying that the press that it uh, that it comes from ha- has a bit of a bias, and the sources that are being used might have some of some of a bias as well. Okay, the Guten Guttmacher Institute. Uh, their front page says advancing sexual and reproductive health worldwide through research, policy analysis, and public education. So and I think their they resources have a- are about a- abortion, contraception. There's nothing on there about abstinence. Okay. So they they seem to have a bias against that particular teaching. Okay. So that's fine. So now the person writing the article are they a, are they a science journalist or are they just a, a just a, a journalist a political journalist? Uh, there's no oh. byline. Yeah, there's no, no byline. My guess would be that it's just a journalist. Okay. So political or otherwise. Political or otherwise. Probably not a science journalist. Okay, so one of the things that I have to try and help me with confirmation bias, since you know I recognize that this is a, this is an issue, um, I have a credibility credibility spectrum that I use to help me try to rate articles. So this particular article, um, well, I, let me talk a little bit more about my credibility spectrum. So I, I've rated stuff from high to low, as far as as far as how I think that they're these people are generally credible. So at the top of my of my credibility spectrum, having the highest credibility are going to be statements from professional societies. So we there's a few of them. Um, I was going to name one of them here. Just a second, guy. Some somebody like the uh, National Academy of Science. So they're an organization, and in this particular organization would go higher on my credibility scale than statements from organizations that contract or contrast to normal bias. So that that's my next thing down. Um, so an idea of this would be if ExxonMobil came out tomorrow and told us gas was bad. That would be contra- contrasting their normal bias. So and then next down from that, I have government reports. And, you know, I, I actually think government reports are usually pretty good, you know, that, that if... if, if because there's a group of people working on it that generally, you know, they're they're probably pretty reliable. The next step down, I have uh, university research programs. Below that, I have science journalists. Below that, I have professionals. Below that, I have other journalists. Um, below that, I have petitions. Uh, below that, I have political journalism and media. And at the very bottom, I have individual per, uh, individual people. So I so I've kind of ranked people based on how I kind of feel, you know, their reliability is going to be. So this is going to fall into it's either going to be in, go into my other journalism category or my political journalism category. And I and I put political journalism down towards the bottom because I think generally political journalists are so heavily biased one way or another that it that it affects their credibility. This particular article I I, I can't really tell. I don't know if the journalist is a general journalist or a political journalist. But there's a couple of things in this article that, for me, um, I, I have to I have to you know knock at a couple of things. One is the source, the AFP, which seems to have a liberal bias. So so this so this you know could be biased because of that. Um, and then the sources that they're crediting can be slightly biased. So it's going to go for me. I'm going to put this, you know, in my political journalist and media category, but it's going to go even towards the bottom of that category. Uh, one thing on this this article I'm looking at here is that the 
the journalist is actually kind of invisible in the article. The journalist doesn't seem to have a voice. He's just reporting it straight out. Okay. So it may not necessarily be on that political scale. It may just be general journalism. Okay. It's still, though, because of, the, because of those two things, I would put it towards the bottom of that spectrum. I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that the journalist doesn't have his own voice in here. It's, it's, okay. It's, he's invisible. Which, for me, gives it more credibility. If, Absolutely. Yeah, because then, because then he's trying to keep his bias out of it, which I. Appreciate. But also, we're only hearing from the people that um, support the idea that abstinence-only programs had an influence on the rise in teen pregnancy. Right. It we doesn't, don't hear anybody refuting it. It's not a two-sided. Yeah, if we've this, just got the mocker institute. Right. If this was an institute that normally um, goes the other way, and they were contrasting their normal bias. It would go much higher in my credibility spectrum, but and but that's not what we have here. So so these people, I mean, this is definitely you know this is their bias. Yep. So I so I I, I knock points off, if you will. So that's one of the things that I've been doing to, to help you know protect myself against bias. So now so now I can pin exactly where this goes on my, on my credibility spectrum. It's kind of low. It's good. But certainly, I would want more research before I would accept this. Right. I would at least like to see a series of interviews with people, not necessarily interviews, but uh, some data indicating that they've actually spoken to, you know, say, I talked to a thousand teenage girls, and they all said, well, you know, hey, if we'd been taught about contraception, I don't think I'd be pregnant right now. Uh, the note I put under the link for this was, um, I've got to find that thing on Epic Fail. It was either Fail Blog or Epic Fail, um, which are obviously related. Um, someone had posted, uh, everybody's seen Yahoo questions. You can post a question and people answer it. So it was a screenshot of a Yahoo question somebody had posted. It said, but I don't understand what sex has to do with getting pregnant because sex is just about feeling good and getting close to your boyfriend and getting off, right? <laughs> it's like oh, oh boy no and when you're wow. talking when you're talking pregnancy there you've got to get into cabbage leaves and storks <laughs> and you know and we need to be able to determine what color the feathers of the storks were <laughs> wait different part of the show yeah. different part of the show but, um i should also mention that one of my very good friends in high school her mother was a teen mother her parents had not signed the paper for her to attend the big sex talk in high school. She had no idea what was going on with her. <laughs> yeah, well, Sarah was that way. Um, when I first met her, she wasn't allowed to do any sex education in school, and she really was, you know, I met her when she was 21. She was clueless about her own body. She really had no idea how any of it worked or anything like that. It's like, wow, in this day and age to go through the whole system and not have that knowledge. Well, and it's, it's really sad because we're biological creatures. We have a biological imperative to reproduce. Right. Trees make seeds, flowers make seeds, fruit makes seeds. Everything that's alive tries to stay alive, make more of itself, spread around. That's what living things do. And so to not give people an understanding of what is going on inside their bodies, you're you're taking the thinking section away from it and right. away and see, from people. That's one of the things a lot of these people that are against sex ed don't seem to understand. It's more than just talking about the act of sex. 
it's talking about, you know, a lot deeper stuff, a lot more personal stuff that you really should know. And to actually try and say, you know, all oh, sex ed is bad, no. You, you, just because you have the name sex in, that does not necessarily mean all they do is say, okay, guys, you know, this is how sex works. Go at it. Exactly. It's about the health issues as well as preventing pregnancy if you do choose to have sex. Disease. Well, there, was that, there was that big thing last year, the year before, about I think it was Obama was talking about promoting um, age-appropriate sex education for kindergartners. And they're like, oh, sex education for kindergartners. Well, if you looked at age-appropriate, basically what it was going to consist of is the, the kid would learn that, okay, listen, that's your body. You don't let people play with it. Stuff like that. Stuff that, honestly, a kindergartner should have knowledge of. Exactly. And they weren't going to teach them how their bodies work. At that point, they were just going to teach them the idea of, you know, your, it's your body. You need to protect it. You know, you shouldn't allow strangers to be messing with it. And that, to me, makes sense. It's not, it's sex education, but it's not teaching them sex. And, yeah. you know, people, just the word sex has such a impact with them that, you know, oh, automatic, ooh, it's nasty, it's dirty. It's no, it's not. They obviously don't remember the public service announcements from when we were kids. Where's G.I. Joe saying, knowing is half the battle? <laughs> okay, but wait a second. Isn't that just your bias? That you think yes, everybody should is. have sex education? I think education? people should have knowledge, be taught to think for themselves, and <laughs> to have information vital to their health and well-being. But it's not just her bias. It's G.I. Joe's bias, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay. So, I mean, I think we've pretty much covered this. I mean, as far as this piece of it. So, I mean, this article we wanted to illustrate... We're, we're biased, you know, bias, and I think that we've done that. I think that we've shown, I mean, this article in itself has a lot of bias. Right. Yep. Now, the other thing, the other point about confirmation bias that I wanted to make is that, you know, people believe that they're too smart to be fooled. And the fact of the matter is, is that the smarter the people are, sometimes the more likely they are to be fooled because they, they think that they, they can't. Can. Right. Uh, the smarter the people are, the more likely they are to fool themselves because no matter how smart you are, you're smarter than yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, so here's another, here's another reason, you know, that I have my, my credibility scale here so that, you know, I can try and put articles like this where they belong on my, on my credibility spectrum. Right, but even within that, like, you know, the article by itself is one area, but we've already talked about how there are studies out there that um, defend the article. At which point would that move the article to a different level credibility-wise, if you already know that there's studies to defend it? Are the sources and studies going to fall higher in my credible? To a more credible state. And yeah, not it the article. Yeah. It, it just gives more backup to it. Right, but if... But the article itself, on its own merits, it, it, that's the way it has to stand. Right. And the article itself is not credible. Well, I'm not saying it's not completely uncredible either. I'm just saying that I, I you know, I, I have to evaluate the article and I have to evaluate the source and then I have to decide where it belongs in my credibility spectrum at that point. So basically you're saying don't just take everything you read at face value but to actually think about it. That's what I'm saying. But, but, but we're the American public, damn it. Well, you want to start thinking now? Oh. Well, not now you. you're showing your bias. <laughs> when I was a kid, people used to tell me, "Are you English? You you couldn't have been born here. You're too smart." 
There you go. There's a bias for you. Anti-intellectualist. So, I mean, of course there's such thing as ghosts, because how could I be wrong? <laughs> I don't know which is more disturbing, the thought that there could be something watching me right now, or the thought that I really am alone and I've been dancing for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just the brandy. <laughs> ah, yes, brandy. She's a fine girl. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah, I see I pictures of her all over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I think we've gotten uh, about to the end of this. Yeah, I think so too. We're so, to get silly. so there's just so, <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to. I mean, so so I mean, the thing to remember about confirmation bias is that every one of us is susceptible to it, and smart people are more susceptible to it. And so it's important for all of us to be aware of that. And so tools like my credibility spectrum are one of the ways in which we can, you know, try and keep that bias in check, you know, to, to make sure that we're, that we're evaluating things on their merits. I know you're trying to force your bias on all of us. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard it, I've heard it said that a wise man is wisest when he realizes what he doesn't know. There you go. Well, I mean, do you guys have credibility spectrums? Do, do you? Not have... that I'm aware of. No. Well, so well, how do know, how I've do you a, how I, are you? I've got a personal credibility spectrum, but it's nowhere near as involved as as yours is. Well, right. I said I think you should mention yeah. where you got your. Okay, yeah. So I do want to talk about this book. I, the book I'm reading is called "What's the Worst That Could Happen" by uh, Greg Craven, and and this book is fantastic. Um, it's it's a book on global warming. And certainly, you know, his bias is, is towards, you know, global warming is happening. But there's really only one chapter in this book about the science of global warming. The rest of it is skeptical tools, how to use them, um, and the, you know, and how to evaluate data. And so I, I've really been enjoying this book from that perspective, you know, of going through and using, you know, the the tools that he's giving me to analyze data. And so the reason that I have such a, a laid out credibility spectrum is, you know, he, he told me to. And because he's a high school science teacher, <laughs> I did what I was told. <laughs> Part uh, of my own authority figures. <laughs> yes. Don't make an appeal to authority here, Brian. Uh, we talked about that last week. Yes, Part yes. of my own credibility spectrum is I always look at it in terms of what's in it for what's in it for them to say one way and what's in it for them to say the other. Well, that's, is there money in it for them to say right. this and is there is there something bad happening to them if they say the opposite? Listen, at some point if we're lucky, each and every one of us will be accused of being on the take of big pharma. Ooh. Could we put that on the t shirt? You have to come up with <laughs> Yeah, we need to start merchandising. We already know that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. No, but so, yeah, so that's why I have such a, a laid out credibility spectrum is because when I was reading this book, this is one of the, one of the exercises that I did, um, you know, when I was reading it. And I found it to be incredibly useful. Since I've done this, you know, it helps me to look at an article more critically and put it in my spectrum and, you know, and decide how much weight I should give it. Yeah, that was one of the things that I learned very early on in education classes was that you can't just 
tell somebody, this is what I think. You have to say, there's a study. This is what they did. This is what they were looking for. This is what they found out. It, you know, as a teacher, you can't just present everything as, well, I think this is the way it should be. You have to look at what is research showing us about how children learn, what strategies work best. And so I'm, I've always, since that point, and probably slightly before, um, been the type of person who looks at things and go, okay, well, are they using a lot of emotion words to, to get you riled up without really telling you anything? And um, it's not a viewpoint that a lot of people I know share. The, well, what does the evidence say? What does the research say? What does back this up with something besides, well, it just seems like it should be like this? Right. Well, the statistics say that our population is 95% scientifically illiterate. So that doesn't surprise me. So they're not. So, so yeah, which is one of the reasons that, you know, that I wanted to do this podcast is to promote science and reason and, and critical thinking because we don't have it. We're not being taught how to, how to think critically and to do things and analyze data and to do all these things that we should be doing. You know, I remember being taught the scientific method and understanding it. But I also know that there are people in my classes in, you know, 5th, 6th, 7th grade who didn't understand it. And I don't know what the difference was. Yeah, well, yeah, I remember the same kind of thing in science class. A lot of people just not quite catching on to certain things. And to me, it was, you know, it was easy. It was obvious. And here they are not picking it up. And I, you know, it, it's a state of mind that some people just don't have. Right. Well, and the other thing is that, you know, now when I, when I say something, I can usually go find a source that, you know, that backs it up. This is where I got it. And the, and these are, you know, these are the credibility factors of my source. But most people can't do that. They say things, you know, at a gut level, and that's what they believe. Yeah. And we, we know that not always what you believe is what's real. Right. <laughs> right. And that's, that's a big, no, that's a big part of this. Isn't that but, a beautiful sentence? <laughs> it flows so well. The thing is, so I mean, how, I mean, how do you guys right now protect yourself against confirmation bias? I, believe... <laughs> I never really thought about myself. Well, and that, so and that's great, and 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 that that that's great to hear. But now that I've brought it up and 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 I've talked about it, do you think you'll ever not be able to think about it? No. Hopefully there's not. always going to be there, there's always going to be that doubt, you know. Uh, some some comic that was I think of the I think it was Emo Phillips. He was talking about you know I think that the brain is the most important part of the body, but you know look at what's telling me that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing to remember, and, and this uh, this is also goes into confirmation bias, is that the more information you have the grayer things get. You know, it's easy to to have, the, you know, to research just what what your bias is and, and to spout that. But when you really start researching it and finding out what the other side of it is, even though you still may be, you know, to one side of it, it gets fuzzier because you get more information. And I can confirm that because it seems like the more information I get, the grayer I get, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm working on my five head. <laughs> yes, you are. My, my forehead is gone. Well, it's not gone. It's it's just it's just become a five head. Exactly. 
All right, guys. I think that uh, I think that we've covered that, and I think that uh, I hope that I've given you guys something to think about too. When with it, with confirmation bias, absolutely. It's been a, it's been a good podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> another one in the can. There's another one in the can. Thank All you, everybody, right. for joining me. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for having us, as always. We will talk to you again in uh, in two weeks. Hopefully, I would like to get the podcast going weekly, but for right now, we're going to continue to do bi-weekly. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Contact information for Amateur Skeptics can be found at AmateurSkeptics.com. Music for this podcast was provided by OMF. Learn more about OMF at MySpace.com forward slash OMFHQ. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is released under a Creative Commons No Derivative 3.0 license. We'd love to have you share our work with other people. Please don't change or edit the file.